All right, good to see each of you here at prayer meeting here this evening at Community. And if you would take your Bibles and join me in the 96th Psalm. Pastor Cameron, of course, is out of town, so we'll do the best we can here tonight and share God's Word together. Psalm 96, verse 5. Just going to read one verse here. We'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll look at God's Word this evening. Notice this verse. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you for your watch care. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege that we have to be in church this evening and how, how greatly we stand in need, Lord, of your blessing to uh, encourage us here at the midpoint of the week, uh, to uh, hear us as we pray, to uh, bless our fellowship together as we would share requests. And we pray that the time that we have tonight to look into God's Word for a few minutes would be edifying and helpful to us. And Lord, would you just please uh, lead, guide, and direct in what I say tonight. Help me to say those things that will be helpful and uh, profitable and leave unsaid those things that don't need to be said. And we'll commit these things to you now in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, I would like to call your attention to a phrase out of verse 5 there in Psalm 96. And the phrase is worthless idols. Worthless idols. I want to think with you a little bit about this tonight. Um, I have had an amazing number of uh, data entry points, so to speak, with respect to this particular phrase. Uh, I'm sure you don't remember this particular phrase, but in the scripture reading this past Sunday in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, uh, in the reading that I did, actually, that phrase was there in verse number 26. And then uh, earlier in the weekend, I had been reading in my devotions, and I was reading about uh, the story of Elijah and the contest on Mount Carmel. And of course, what a grand picture that is of worthless idols as this contest goes on between Elijah and and uh, the prophets of Baal and how they're calling on the prophets of, uh, the ba prophets of Baal are calling on Baal. Oh, God, oh, Baal, hear us. You know, and it's kind of a, a fruitless and kind of a, a vain story as it's portrayed there. Um, something that's really interesting about 1 Chronicles 16 is, is that if you back up and look earlier in the chapter, you find it's actually a psalm. It's recorded in that particular place, but it's a psalm that David wrote for the occasion that's mentioned there. And so the touch point with the Psalms is interesting because that brings us to Psalm 96 and verse 5 where we find that exact phrase once again, worthless idols. Now it's interesting that it's in the Psalms that we find this developed a little bit more. So I'm going to ask you to turn over to Psalm 115 with me for a few moments. Not that there aren't other places in the Bible, but if we're thinking about the Psalms, this is a great place to go to see this idea of worthless idols develop just a little bit more. So in Psalm 115, verse 2, let's start reading there. We're just going to read down through verse 9, and watch for the phrase. It will come up. Uh, why, why should the nation say, where is their God? Oh God, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols, so there's the reference to the idols, are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Notice verse 9, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help 
and their shield. So thinking about worthless idols tonight and thinking about this being developed a little bit more in this particular psalm, and by the way, you also have very similar wording, not quite as in-depth, but in Psalm 135. Do you notice how it uses the language of the senses? So, for example, if you look up about the senses that we have, generally they're considered to be five. Some, some lists have seven, and some lists really get whacked out within the 20s. But we, <laughs> we usually think about five senses, and most of that is what you have here. It's not a complete duplication, but that's mostly the way this is developed for us tonight. So what I want to talk to you about tonight and the message that I would like to get across is simply this, the privilege that you and I have to pray to the true and living God. So let's see about how this is developed. Do you notice, first of all, in verse 5, it says, they have mouths, but they do not speak. So what might we say first of all about our God as opposed to worthless idols? Well, I would say he speaks. And if we think about the fact that God speaks, boy, we have a whole arena of things that we could talk about in the Bible. Because in a general sense, you think about God's revelation. And we know that God chooses to reveal himself. But in a practical sense, the mere fact that God chooses to reveal himself is his, it speaks to us about his desire to communicate to communicate himself, and so therefore it speaks of fellowship. And if you really want to take this to a deeper level, this actually mirrors something that's true about God because you have complete and perfect harmonious fellowship within the persons of the Godhead in the Trinity. God is a being of fellowship. And so the fact that God makes man in his own image and in his own likeness, it's not surprising that God has this desire to communicate to us and to communicate to his create creation. Um, thinking about that same story that I alluded to earlier, First Kings and the contest on Mount Carmel, do you remember what happens in the aftermath of this? And, and I, in the interest of time, I'm not turning to a lot of these verses tonight because we could really go for a lot more time than what we have. But do you remember that he gets discouraged after he's threatened by Jezebel? Remember this? And he takes off, and he's there on Mount Carmel. He comes down, and he ends up all the way down in Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And there God speaks to him. And you remember there's a great wind. You remember there's a fire. You remember there's an earthquake. Do you remember this? But in each of those instances, it says, but God was not in the fire. God was not in the earthquake. God was not in the great wind. And then that next verse goes on to say that then God spoke to him in a still, small voice. And this is God communicating to his prophet. And I think if you want to get particular about that particular situation that's going on there, it's God saying to him, you know, I'm not always in the big showy things. I was in the, the fire that came down in the contest with the prophets of Baal, but I'm just as much in speaking to you in your heart and through my revelation. And that's a great thing for us to think about tonight. It's amazing, really, to think that God desires our fellowship. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 tells us that God is faithful by whom we have been called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Or in 1 John 1, 3, there's an interesting verse. John tells us, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, 
that you might also have fellowship with us. And then he goes on to say this, and truly our fellowship is with God and with his son, Jesus Christ. That's just a startling and amazing thing. So this is such a difference between the worthless idols and the God that we serve, that God desires our fellowship. And of course, prayer is a great venue. Prayer is a key avenue for our fellowship with God. Well, we have to hasten. Secondly, you notice in that verse number five, it says, they have eyes, but they do not see. What does it mean that to say, to turn it around and make it a positive statement about our God? What does it mean that God sees? Well, if God sees, that means he's aware, right? You know, I, I, I grew up understanding that uh, mothers have eyes in the back of their head. And uh, I was reminded of that when we were raising our children. And I, I also um, learned that women seem to have this ability to listen to multiple conversations at one time. And I was really sorry at that. But my wife could tune in on something I was saying and then hear something our kids were saying. Or she could tune into something I was saying at, the re- at a restaurant and, and hear something somebody else was saying at another table. So remember that if you see us, you're not safe. But the fact that God sees means that he's aware. It means he takes knowledge of us. It means that he knows what's going on. And if we want to relate that to prayer, we have a fantastic verse for this. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 8 tells us not to engage in the vain repetitions of the heathen. And why are we not to do that? Why are we not to engage in the vain repetitions of the heathen when when we pray? Because God already knows what we have need of before we ask. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 8. And then we have some fantastic verses in the Bible. It's just frustrating not to be able to share more of these with you, but think of 2 Chronicles 16 and verse 9. The eyes of the Lord, it mentions God's eyes, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is perfect towards him. Or how about a verse like this, Psalm 34, verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. So it relates the eyes and the ears and relates it all to prayer. Let's move on. Then in verse number 6, notice it tells us that God hears. Of course, when you come to this, notice verse 6, they have ears, but they do not hear. So God hears. That's kind of the the key one in, in terms of these senses that speaks directly to the idea of prayer. God hears. And so, again, think about this contest on Mount Carmel, and I want to actually turn to it now for just a moment. Um, So if you would like to follow along in this, I'm in 1 Kings chapter 18. Just going to look at three verses ever so quickly. But in verse number 24, so when he's issuing this challenge to the prophets of Baal, he says in verse 24, And you call upon the name of your God, And I will call upon the name of the Lord, 1 Kings 18, verse 24, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. All the people answered, it is well spoken. Drop down now to verse 26. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. You know, when you look at this, and of course it actually develops this a little bit, but this is, uh, you know, this is Elijah just 
kind of has a little fun with this, doesn't he? He says, well, yeah, maybe he's asleep. Maybe you need to holler a little louder. And I mean, it got to the point where they started to cut themselves and the blood was flowing and nothing much came of any of that. Baal couldn't hear them because Baal's a worthless idol. But notice verse 36 as we move towards the conclusion of the story. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, or hear me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you are, you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. God hears. Notice the next verse, or or the next phrase here. It says, in the end of verse 6, noses but they do not smell. Then let's kind of catch you off guard a little bit that this particular one would be mentioned. God smells. Now, don't take that wrong. But God can smell, and God does. What exactly does that mean? Well, if you think about this for a moment, it really makes a lot of sense. When you're identifying something you're wanting to communicate about God in terms of human senses, and you talk about the sense of smelling, what does that mean? Well, Smells are either very pleasant or they tend to be not pleasant. So they either please, we find them pleasing, or we find them displeasing. Well, that brings us right away to a verse in Amos chapter 5, verse 21. And God expresses himself there in no uncertain terms in this very respect. It says there, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no pleasure I take no pleasure, he says, in your solemn assemblies. That's the ESV translation of it. Literally, when it says, I take no pleasure, it it is more literally, I do not smell. So in other words, it was an offense to God what they were doing because they were given over to idolatry and they weren't worshiping God in a true way. So in what sense can it be said that God takes pleasure in us? Well, thank God he is pleased with us through the sacrifice of his son. And inasmuch as he's pleased with the sacrifice of his son, we are accepted in the beloved and are well-pleasing to God. But, you know, this is the language of sacrifice. I think you, you, you might have noticed that. And uh, it's interesting that the very first reference to this in the Bible is way back in the book of Genesis. And I, I just want to read this one ever so quickly as well. Genesis 8:21. Sometimes when you're studying the Bible, um, Bible students talk about what's called the law of first reference. And there is some truth to that. I mean, sometimes when something significant is mentioned, the first time it's mentioned, you find kind of a kernel thought there that's then the seeds are planted and and much of what's there uh, for what we find later in Scripture, but it's just in a very terse and kind of a seed-type form. Well, there's a little bit of truth to that in this reference here because in uh, Genesis 8.21, This is Noah, and the flood has receded, and of the clean animals, he makes a sacrifice. And what does it say? This is the first reference to the Lord smelling in the Bible. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, 
the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. We have some really significant elements there. If God is pleased with this sacrifice and promises never again to curse the earth, then we take this out in what I said earlier. God is so pleased with the sacrifice of his son on Calvary that he has lifted the curse from you and me. And when we are in his son, he finds us well-pleasing. We are accepted, in fact, in the beloved. And on through Leviticus and on through Numbers, you have lots of references to this because it's the language of sacrifice. And so ultimately, God is well-pleased with our prayers. And we actually have a verse that brings out that, that exact sense when you look at Proverbs 18 and, or 15 and verse 8, where it says, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. You see that? The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. In verse 7, notice the first part. They have hands, but they do not feel. Well, it's the way the ESV translates this, do not feel. King James renders, do not handle. So we've got a, a variety of ways that we could think about this, but God feels. God's hand in the Bible, you could come up with, I think, in the hundreds of verses that talk about the hand of God. The hand of God speaks of God's power. And moreover, when you start talking about the touch of God, now you've really come across something that is developed in the New Testament because over and over again in the Gospels, when Jesus went to heal, it's prefaced by the fact that says he touched. I'm just going to give you one example. I really like the one in Luke chapter 17, but there are multiple examples of this. I challenge you sometime to look for it. But I like that reference in Luke 17 or Luke 7 verses 13 and 14 where it, it talks about that funeral procession. It's the widow of Nain. And this woman who is a widow, obviously, she's called that, so she has no husband. This is her only son. She's now lost him. And it's the, the scene that's portrayed for us is if Jesus is coming into this little place called Nain. And as he enters, he meets a funeral procession coming out. And the Bible right away tells us that he had compassion on the woman. And the very next thing, the very next verse tells us, and he touched the bier. And the moment he did that, it stopped that funeral procession. I mean, they just stopped dead away. And the next thing that Jesus said was, young man, I say unto thee, arise. Some people here tonight will remember a Gaither song that was actually written back in 1963, so now we're going way back. But that song is still around, and there are a lot of people that enjoy that song, but of course, that's exactly the title of it, He Touched Me. You remember that? For those of you that... And that song, I mean, say what you will, but he hits on a point that's pretty significant. And, of course, it gets a lot of response from the audience when he talks about that or when he sings about that. He touched me. 
It speaks of God's compassion, the fact that God feels. Let's bring that real quickly to prayer. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we have not an high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted or tested, like as we are, yet without sin. And last, God walks. And we know a lot about that. Think about how early that occurs to us in Scripture. Genesis 3.8, they heard the voice or sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Walking in the garden. And of course, you're not really putting too much weight on this to get from it that this was God's custom of fellowshipping with Adam and Eve until sin entered into the world. They heard the voice or sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. And of course, we have a song that comes out of that where we enjoy that, especially with reference to prayer. I come to the garden alone, you know, in the garden. He speaks and the sound of his voice is so sweet. The birds hush their singing. All about that we know, and it, it brings us to, to God's presence. It brings us right back again to the idea of fellowship. In verse 12 of Leviticus chapter 26, the Bible says, And I will walk among you and be your God. But it's literally, I will tabernacle. And of course, we know in the Old Testament, there was a tabernacle where God's presence was. Ultimately, there was a temple where God's presence was. And then we come to the New Testament, and we read in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. And we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This intense desire that God has to communicate to us, not only in that He speaks to us and He desires our fellowship, but He walks with us. So when we put all of these things together, what do we have? Well, the psalmist sums it up. Let's just look back at our psalm and we'll close this tonight. Verse 2, once again, of Psalm 115. Why should the nations say, where is their God? And then there's this description of how worthless these idols are. And then verse 9, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. What's that basically saying except that idols which are the product of man's hands, made by man's hands and made in man's own image are precisely as powerless and helpless as are we. Because they're our own creation. Not so with God. Brings us back again to what a privilege it is to know and to pray to the true and living God. I want to quick close with this. I had another data point that I didn't mention in the introduction, just as well to save it for now, but a week or so ago, we had gone to the church library and checked out the frontline dispatches on uh, India. And the reason we were interested in that was because we've never met Johnson George. I'm not sure when he's last been here for a visit, but we didn't know a, a lot about him. We're interested in learning more, and we knew that he was featured in that in that particular episode, so we watched that. 
And, uh, you know, people talk about Sunday being a day of rest and all that, and it's nice, you know, if you can manage to get there. And I was thinking about having some nice rest Sunday afternoon. Not that I can really take a nap, but just, you know, kind of don't have any other duties, nothing to do. I'm telling you, we turned this thing on. Yeah, it was about an hour. That thing was over with. I said, there's not going to be any rest today. I mean, that thing really stirred me. It was like, I thought about like when Paul went into Athens and he saw all those idols. And it says his spirit was stirred within him. And I mean, if you've seen that thing, it just is so provocative because here you've got Tim Cassie going all around and, and you've got Johnson George taking him on this trip. And everywhere you go, they have footage of these idols. And they're images of man, sometimes grotesque, you know, but they're images of man. And one of the interesting things about them is, and maybe you've seen this before, but the Romans do this too. And I don't know why I took my glasses off to show this to you, except not to smudge them. But you know, you've seen this before, and you see this in, these, in some of these things right in that, in that dispatches, where they'll show you the eye. They have the eyes there. But in many instances, the eyes don't have any iris or pupil. Do you know what I'm talking about? Think of, think of in the Roman world when you see this, but it's the same thing. You just have kind of like a ball there, but no iris and no pupil. And it's almost like they're blind. Well, they are. They don't see. But our God does. Heavenly Father, encourage us tonight with the privilege that you've given us to come into your very presence, the true and living God. And thank you that you stoop to describe yourself to us in our own terms that we can understand here tonight. And I pray that you would just give some uh, consciousness to us and some uh, blessing to us of what that really means, especially when we look around and see the world, as John said, wholly given to idolatry. And Lord, we realize today that people don't always have little figurines up on shelves in a, in a place that is so supposedly sophisticated as America, but we have our idols all over the place. And in some parts of the world, as the dispatches on India show us, it's still very much so that people do this. And yet you invite us to come into your presence and you hear our prayers. Thank you for this and make this time rich for us tonight as we share our requests in Jesus' name. Amen.